Hey, this is Karis Ryan and welcome to Teach Me in 20. This week's episode, we're chatting with Sean Dustin. He's previously been in jail and also recovered from a drug addiction. Now, this is a over a 10-year journey we're talking about. There's so many facets to it. Even Sean himself says he's done like a three-hour interview before and hasn't been able to get through everything. So it was never going to be a short episode on this one. Think of it as it's sort of two parts. First up, we talk about Sean getting into drugs, getting into that crowd, and then sort of what led him to his first stint in jail. He was there for three years and then ended up going back in. So we talk about that journey. And then it's not until 2010 that he decided to turn his life around and he shares what made him want to do it then, how he did it. Um, And it's great to see him go full circle and be out the other end because as we've seen in the past with addiction, that's not always possible. Keep in mind that this is Sean's story, Sean's journey, and it's unique to him. You may know someone who's on a different path, but this is how Sean has overcome it and it's hearing from him. I've never spoken to anyone who's had a drug addiction before, so I was interested in how he got there, how it impacted his wider circle and how he's come out the other end. And Sean does say if anyone gets any questions that come up through this chat, to reach out to him and you can ask those questions in our Teach Me In 20 podcast Facebook group. So just search on Facebook, Teach Me In 20 podcast, and you should find our group there. It's building slowly. So drop us a comment, ask us a question in there and Sean will be able to answer them for you. Let's get to Sean's story. Teach Me In 20. Teach Me In 20. How are you, Sean? I'm good, Karis. How are you? Yeah, good. Thanks for joining us today. How did you end up in prison? Was it related to the drug addiction? Tell us all about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's been it's been a long road. Uh, I'm I'm glad that you know that part of it is is over. And it was a 15 year journey for me. Um, you know, uh, from childhood. I was always a bad kid, um, you know, and it wasn't that I had a bad heart. I just was, uh, I had a lot of time on my hands. I didn't have a lot of discipline, didn't have a lot of supervision. Um, so, I mean, which allowed me to kind of do what I wanted. And then I just carried that into adulthood. Uh, the first time I, I tried uh, anything was probably when I was around... Keep in mind that this is Sean's story, Sean's journey, and it's unique to him. You may know someone who's on a different path, but this is how Sean has overcome it, and it's hearing from him. I've never spoken to anyone who's had a drug addiction before, so I was interested in how he got there, how it impacted his wider circle, and how he's come out the other end. And Sean does say if anyone gets any questions that come up through this chat to reach out to him and you can ask those questions in our Teach Me In 20 podcast Facebook group. So just search on Facebook, Teach Me In 20 podcast, and you should find our group there. It's building slowly. So drop us a comment, ask us a question in there, and Sean will be able to answer them for you. Bowl. So I'm like, oh, you burn it. And so I tried it. And I, we lived on a uh, on a uh, steep hill at that time, and I was into skateboarding. And I jumped on my skateboard, and I rode oh, straight no. down this hill, straight down the hill, and uh, I made it. I didn't get any speed wobbles. Uh, usually, I, I'll I'll stop. You know, if I get going too fast, you know how you you jump off and you know <laughs> slow yourself down. Yeah, uh, and I didn't. And 
that was kind of what gave me like, oh, wow, this is like superpower stuff. You know what I mean? It, it, it takes away all your fears. And, you know, that I'm not going to say that that turned into other things because I, I really don't believe that marijuana is a gateway. I think marijuana is a, a, a unique tool, just like psilocybin and, and, and mushrooms and, and that. Uh, but, you know, the lack of discipline, the lack of uh, supervision allowed me to get uh, – <laughs> there was no role models there really to – show me the right way. You know, my mom was busy trying to, you know, support a house and a, a, a child. Um, you know, my brother and sister had, you know, they're 10 years, my senior. So they are already out of the house. And so really I just, you know, was, was lost. Yeah. And I, you know, I hung out with, with good friends, you know, they weren't bad, but they had all were experiencing and experimenting with, uh, it was called crank back then, which is now methamphetamine. And none of them would give it to me because I was the youngest in the group. So none of them wanted to be responsible for, for introducing me to this, you know, this substance with, so they obviously knew it was bad because they didn't want me to do it. Um, and so that became something where I'm like, well, now I want it even more because I can't, because I can't, because he's I, obviously you guys are doing it. Like I'd be hanging out with them. And then all of a sudden everyone would disappear into a room and lock the door. And like, I was stuck there, you know, hanging out like, well, where's everybody at? And so I wanted this, you know, I wanted to, to feel like I was a part of. And so at some point I had, uh, you know, my dad and my mom had split up, uh, when I was five and my dad had remarried, uh, a, a lady that had lived down the street from, uh, my house and her sisters were, uh, like bad news. You know what I mean? Like stoners, like the, the druggy types. Uh, and I knew, I knew that that was, that that was available there. Right. Because I'd gone there for, uh, you know, that was where my grandmother, my step grandmother at the time lived. So I would go down there and hang out because literally it was right down the street and around the corner. So how old were you when you first tried meth? 15, maybe 14, 15. And then it's sort of, how long after did you realize you had an addiction? Well, I, I don't know. I was so young. It was, you know, I was just constantly getting in trouble. Um, my mom gave me up as a ward of the court, which means she gave me up to the state and said, Hey, I can't, I can't control him here. You guys, you do it. And so, you know, I'd, I'd finally gotten myself into enough trouble where at about 16, uh, I had already been to the boys ranch. I'd already been to juvenile hall. Uh, I got in trouble again and they said, look, you're either going to go to uh, nine months in, in juvenile hall or you can go to a six-month drug rehab, which was co-ed. And I was like, well, that's a no-brainer. <laughs> <laughs> so I chose the co-ed. <laughs> yeah, smart move. So when for you said you were getting into trouble, was that you were dealing drugs or you because you were ta- on drugs, you were doing you know crimes? No, I was just, I had gotten, you know, when I, when I got into, uh, uh, high school, I had gotten into some, some trouble and involved with the law and, you know, over a fight or actually uh, there was a riot that was incited, they said, and I, and I was the one that started it. So I got in trouble for that. And so that got me into the system 
And then just my behavior got me, you know, placed where I was. Cause I, I mean, I didn't care. I was like, you know, I was whatever. When you went to the co-ed drug rehab, how long were you there for? Well, I was actually there for about 16 months because in a rehab, they don't, it's not, it's not based on, on time. It's based on progress. And, and so I was manipulating the whole way, you know, in there, I had, you know, taken a, gotten one of the clients to the female clients to run away with me so I could have sex with her. Um, <laughs> and then I, you know, turned myself back in, you know, this is just the kind of things that I would do. It was like, you know, rules didn't mean anything to me because I, I grew up with no rules. <laughs> mm, I mean, yeah. yeah, you, you, you told me I had rules, but nobody was there to enforce it and punish me for it for not obeying them. So I just continued it on through my life. And, you know, I ended up getting out of there in 16 months. You know, I, I finally, you know, succumbed to their definition of progress, which is getting real. And I say that in quotations because getting real just meant you need to, you need to cry. <laughs> Okay. You know, and, and show that, you know, that there's some emotion there or, you know, that you feel bad for, you know, whatever sins that you've committed. Uh, so basically you, know, you left there, but you still, you know, did you just leave there and straight away go back to drugs? No, that didn't happen for a while. Uh, I stayed, I stayed clean for about two years. Um, and then just, I found it again, you know, you're always going to, when you don't change the people that you hang around, you're always going to find whatever substance it is that you were uh, playing with to begin with, you know? Okay. And so eventually I found it and, you know, I, I started using again and partying and, and this is where I started selling drugs. And I mean, literally that's all I did, you know, from Monday to Saturday, I was either in a club selling drugs or at a strip club selling drugs. And if I wasn't selling them there, then I was having an after party at my house and selling drugs for the people that were, you know, I was hanging out at the club and we all went back to my place afterwards. So, I mean, it was always, always something going on. My nickname was Mr. After Hours because I always had after hour parties. Uh, <laughs> That was your income, basically dealing drugs. That was, and you're making. If you want, if 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 you want to call it that, I mean, I was a horrible drug dealer. I just, (laughs) yeah, I mean, I made enough money to support my habit and keep myself from getting beat up, so I can get more drugs from the dealers that I was selling for. (laughs) Okay, so how much would you be in terms of money? How much would you be spending a week on meth? I have no idea. I mean, I was selling it, so I was doing it. So I mean, I would never really. Anything that I was selling, I was doing. So, I mean, I went from either selling marijuana to mushrooms to GHB to uh, meth to cocaine to ecstasy. I mean, I was literally, I was a raver. So, I mean, I was constantly in that, in that, that deal. So, I mean, I always tried to justify the fact that I didn't have an, an issue because I would just switch drugs. Like I'm not addicted to cocaine. I'll I'll go and you know pop e like Pez and 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 you know until I can't do that anymore and then I'll switch to another one. I'm not addicted to ecstasy. I just stopped, but now I'm doing GHB like a like a fish out of water. You know, right? So I would just always come up with some silly a silly way to to justify you know what I was doing, and you know in the end I was just prolonging the inevitable, right? There were a lot of good times, 
but the byproduct of those good times was a lot of bad times. You know, I would, I've almost died three times, three or four times on drug overdoses. I almost died from accidents that I've been in because I was, uh, intoxicated on something. Um, you know, I've been in a pretty bad accident. Uh, I, I walked away unscathed and, and, and unhurt, but I mean, it could have been way worse than it was. I was lucky. Right. You know, so what does that I've, feel I've, like almost dying three times? Well, I'll give you one story that will kind of, uh, sum it up for you. It was, uh, I think it was, uh, Halloween and we had gotten together with a bunch of friends and, you know, when you're in the drug world, you don't have friends, you have acquaintances and people that are there because they want something from you. You have something you can offer. They want it. And once that's gone, so, so are they. And that's just usually how it goes. Um, so it was, it was, uh, Halloween. We decided to go out a group of us. Uh, we met up, started out with some Coke, uh, and some alcohol, got into some ecstasy and GHB, uh, at the club. And then we all made our way back to another, uh, person's house, a guy that I was pretty, I mean, I was probably closer than any of the other people that where I was around at the time. And we had continued partying a bottle of tequila got passed around. I remember taking a, a hit off of that. And I remember going and I was in the bathroom and I had some, some more ecstasy, some gel, some gel caps. I gave one to this girl and I was going to take one and she goes, Hey, let's try it this way. And let's, let's do it, you know, uh, as a suppository, which is probably yeah. the, the way to do that, which is going to floor you the fastest, right? Yeah. Cause that's where all your nerve endings are. Well, I had had so much stuff in me already that, all I remember is, is she did it for me. She, she put it there and that's it. I blacked out. Uh, what I was told, um, the next day is that I was foaming at the mouth and they just left me in a, they put me in a room and, and like laid me down and shut the door and continued partying. Wow. And luckily, I guess my body just kind of, you know, did what it needed to do to, to, maybe time. And I, I have no idea. Like I would never have done that to somebody if I seen them, you know what I mean? Like foaming at the mouth, obviously I'm overdosing. I mean, and so I got up and instead of wondering what happened, I mean, cause I felt pretty bad. Right. But I mean, I would just, all right, well, maybe I'm just hung over from the drugs. And immediately I went and got another cap of GHB and got high again. And, and then, then they told, then they told me the story. So, I mean, this is really how my life was, no matter what bad happened, I always went and like got, you know, went and got high to get, to get over it. And I just didn't care. So, I mean, that's, that sums up the people that I've, I was around and my attitude towards like almost dying. <laughs> I didn't care. I'm sorry that happened. That sounds like a horrible experience. Were you taking drugs to mask you know mental feelings or yeah i'm just trying to dive into what kept you wanting to take more and more i don't know man i you know i i don't i was never like physically abused i was never sexually abused i mean aside from like the normal things that you do as a kid when you're exploring with other kids um so i don't know man i just think that 
I learned how to manipulate things from a very young age and I was lazy, had no discipline, had no, uh, structure growing up. So like, I just, I just carried it out into adulthood and I provided myself with a a way to do exactly what I wanted, which was no, no responsibility that mixed with the fact that I had not much to lose. So, I mean, what was, what was the harm in the risk? You know, usually risk versus reward. You, you, if the reward is higher than the risk, you're usually willing to take the risk. But for me, the, the, I wasn't risking anything. So the reward was way higher than, than the risk itself. Did you lose your support network? Did you lose family and friends because of your drug addiction? I chose someone. I was the kind of person that since I was sort of self sufficient in that area, like I knew how to get drugs and I knew how to, to, without having to, you know, steal from family. Like I have stolen from family before, you know, I mean, that's, but not, I mean, most of my stuff, I, you know, I was, I stayed away. So I'm the kind I'm the person that would just disappear. And, you know, once things got so bad, I would come crawling back. Right. And they would but, then I mean, help you like get clean. And then, yeah, my mom again. has never, yeah. Well, my mom has never turned her back on me. Um, you know, it, uh, I find I did get in trouble. Like when I finally got in trouble, like my, my, dude, my story is so long and so complex with so many different periods. It's crazy. Uh, so when you say your mom never left your back, did that not, then you make, make you feel bad hurting her repeatedly over and over again? At some point, yeah, that was like after prison, after, you know, because when I went to prison, there was a whole chapter that led up to me going to prison. And then I went to prison, did my three years, got out in 2006, uh, stayed good for a little while. Then 2008 hit. And we went into the recession, right? I had no job, no money, no income, a lot of time on my hands. So I went and found those same people that I grew up with because I was now back in the same area. And, you know, I was married at the time and just went AWOL from my marriage for three months. I disappeared. I just left. Left my wife, left. Do you know what I mean? Because I'm back on. I'm I'm running again. Learned how to, uh, you know, figured out how to do fraud and, and, uh, check fraud and all that other stuff, learned how to do credit card fraud. And, and that had three violations. Uh, and then in 2010, that's when I decided to change my life and, and what you're talking about, everything just kind of started flooding in about like how shitty of a person I am, you know? So that first time you went to prison, was that for dealing drugs? Yeah, I had gotten, uh, I was, pretty heavily involved, uh, you know, in the, in the underworld of, of Vegas at the time and selling methamphetamine. And I sold to an undercover, uh, somebody set me up. I sold to an undercover five times, got raided. Uh, they let me out two days later cause I didn't have any, any felonies on my record. I've been in plenty of trouble, but I never had graduated to a felony. Right. <laughs> and so they let me out and I was like, well, you're going to have to catch me if you can now. Cause I know what my crimes are and, and I'm, I'm going to go away for a while. So I'm not going to just turn myself in. And eventually I did, I ended up getting in trouble, getting caught. And, 
that was it. And that was in 2004, I think May of 2004. So you had three years in jail that first in. Yep. So how did you, how did that go? How did you go from being free to then being locked up, isolated? Well, when I was, when I was, when I went to juvenile hall for the first time, that was the first time I'd ever been locked up in a cage and not, and that's where I, I learned there that how to handle, handle that. You know what I mean? Because it's, you know, I had a hard time. So think of when you put an animal in a cage, right? For the first time, it does whatever it can to try to get out, bangs the walls, you know, kicks things, you know, just fights it. Right. Well, that was the first time that it showed me that, all right, well, there's nothing you can do. And so you have to accept your situation. So it really wasn't that hard for me when I got locked up. It was scary more than anything, because now I'm like with people that are real badasses and I wasn't really a badass. I was kind of a, I was, I'm I'm a big guy, so nobody really ever messed with me, but I like, I didn't have experience in fighting and and, you know what I mean? Like being a gladiator or anything like that. I got jumped a couple times while I was uh, in fighting my case uh, from gang members got into it with one of them and i didn't realize because i was I, I was kind of by myself right i i look like i'm mexican and hispanic but i'm actually white and so i didn't want to like when i went to do my time i didn't want to click up with anybody i wanted to just do my time and go home i didn't i didn't belong there to begin with right but i had gotten into some funk with somebody and you know they I knew it was coming. They followed me up to my, to my cell and there was four of them and I had to like fight four of them off. Uh, and, and I got overpowered and, you know, I had no choice but to just like, like hit my knees and cover up my face. So they couldn't, uh, they couldn't fuck my face up basically. So, uh, you know, I got, I got through it. So they, they didn't bounce me from the unit. Cause they, you know, normally if, if my face is all messed up, they would put me in uh, solitary confinement and I'd have to do the rest of my time there. Right. Right. So that's because, how you were covering your face. Yeah. So, uh, so they couldn't, oh. so they couldn't do that. So they, they, they beat me pretty good. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it was, th- that was probably like, like it was pretty scary, you know, I mean, for somebody that's not a, a violent person in that manner, and so, and, and when you're in a, when you're in a, a, a county or city jail here in the United States, it's, it's not as safe as prison. Prison is actually <laughs> a lot safer of an environment because there's rules there. There's politics. There's like, you can't, you can't just go and beat somebody up. I mean, it happens, but you're, you, there's consequences for it. You can't just go and beat up a black person. If you're a white person, you have to, if you have issues with a different race, you have to go through, you have your representative, go to their representative and figure it out. And if, and if people need to get touched up, your own people are going to touch you up for making that mistake. Not, not another, not another race. Right. So you just said before you sort of wanted to be by yourself, stick stick alone. Is that was that possible, or are you sort of forced to choose a side and have you know pick a team so they've got your back? Yeah, well, after I got jumped, I, I, I was forced with the with the reality of it that, um, dude, you gotta you gotta pick a side, and so I didn't want to run with the Mexicans because I knew that that they would probably, I would probably leave with or or end up with more time while I was in because of all the stuff that they're involved in. And so, and I, I, I wasn't, I mean, I'm white, 
And the only reason why you, you could tell that I'm white is just how I speak, uh, honestly. And so what I would tell people is that I was uh, Italian. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm just, I'm just dark Italian. You know, I'm, I'm Sicilian. <laughs> uh, and, and that way I, I could roll with the whites because that's who I, that's what I was, I'm used to. You know what I mean? I grew up in a mostly all white neighborhood. I mean, that's, those are the people that I identify with. Right. So, Sean, were there times while you're in prison, those three years, that you just just felt like giving up? Was it just times where you just it was unbearable? No, I mean it was never unbearable, and I'm stubborn. Like I, I don't look at things like that. I look at things as like you're not going to beat me, and you know I just tried to stay safe. So, like that was never an option. The only the only thing that I kept in front of me is like, hey, I got a release date, and let's just try to get there. And, and get on with this, uh, you know, to the next, the next chapter. Did you ever fear for your life? No, I, I, I'm, I made sure that I stayed away from the things in prison that will get you in those situations, which is gambling, drugs, and, uh, any, you know, owing money of any kind, cigarettes, you know, any of the, the contraband, uh, world that's in there, I stayed away from. So did you smuggle drugs while in there? No, no. I, I didn't do drugs while I was in there. I made I made uh, prison prison alcohol. I got in trouble for that. Uh, How do you do that? I was that? making uh, rotten fruit and sugar and yeast. Okay. <laughs> and you let yeah. and you let and you let it ferment and then you you strain it and it gets you it gets you pretty drunk. <laughs> oh god! Right. Learning something new. Um, how accessible are drugs in jail? I mean, there's there's everything. I mean, guards uh, guards are the ones that bring all this stuff in, uh, you know, or or they get smuggled somehow, you know, through visiting. But a lot of it's just guards. So you mentioned the prison guards before. Are you able to, I guess, have a bit of a rapport and, a, and establish a bit of relationship with them, or they just sort of keep separate? Uh, they kind of keep separate. I mean, unless you're you're either buying tobacco from them and they're smuggling it in for you, and and uh, you know, or they're they're involved in that portion of it, you'll probably talk to them. I mean, you're cordial. Uh, you don't want problems with them, and they don't want problems with you. I mean, that's pretty much how it goes. Uh, there's a black market in there, obviously, for tobacco, drugs, cell phones. You know, anything that, you know, pornos, uh, you know, any, anything that you can't, can't have that you want, you could, there's a market for it. Right. Do any of the prisoners try and groom the guards to get information out of them so they can maybe use that outside to their advantage? So, you know, be able to track down where a guard lives. I never experienced any of that. And I was in a medium security, so I don't know what it's like with, you know, in, in high security where you actually have like mafia leaders, Mexican mafia people and like real, real true shit stuff. You know what I mean? Okay. Is, is rape a real thing in prison? So obviously people watch movies and TV shows. Uh, I never saw it, never heard it, uh, in a medium or any of the places that I was in, I imagine that in some of the higher level security things, I mean, that could be a possibility. Okay. I, I don't have any experience with it. I never watched, I never saw it, never participated in it. And 
I never, I never saw any of that. I wanted to ask as well, what movie or TV show do you think best depicts prison in real life without glamming up, but it's actually true to its form? Honestly, uh, Orange is the New Black, the first season. Okay. What was, you know, before it really took a turn and got weird, but the first season was really good. And it was like, they're, they're talking about federal prison. I was in federal prison and it's just like that, even from the way that you dress and all in all khaki to the, to the setting, the setting was a little bit different because we didn't have, we had cells, we didn't have dorms, but it was pretty, it was a pretty good depiction. Okay. What would you say to someone who is about to start a stint in jail? Um, figure out what it is that you want to, that you want to uh, do with that time. Be intentional with what you want to do with that time, because you're going to have a lot of it. Stay away from the people that are going to get you in trouble because it's full of them. Find yourself one or two people that you can relate to, uh, hang out with, and then make those your people, your, your little group. That way you're never anywhere by yourself. You can trust them. You know that they're not going to be manipulating you for like money or, you know what I mean? Because there's all kinds of different characters in there. What about in terms of rehabilitation? Was there any in prison? Was there any support for you during that time? There's support there, but it's not mandatory. Like if you wanted to go to AA meetings, you know, there's people that come in and, and, you know, do those. Uh, if, I mean, it's kind of like in, in the real world, like there's plenty of stuff out there for you to participate in, to become a better person, but it wasn't forced. So, I mean, if you're not there mentally and, and ready to accept that or receive that information or that help, it's not going to find you. So your first in in prison, you then got out. Did you have your wife at the time or you met later on? No, no. I, I met her when I got out. And uh, part of the reason why I don't, it was weird. It was kind of crazy, but I spent the whole time in there alone. Right. I didn't, the, the girl that I was with at the time who I had went to prison and, and when I went to prison, I had took all of the responsibility of, you know, when I took the charges, like, Hey, these people didn't have anything to do with it. They just live here. And I had it set up in a way where it proved that they really, that I could have said that they didn't, even though they did. Um, but she ended up just, you know, leaving me, took all my stuff, uh, cars, whatever I had sold it. Uh, and I didn't get anything. My mom tried to go out there and, and, you know, get some of my stuff back and it just, it just didn't happen. So my, I, I was alone, you know, and I was like, man, if, if, if that ever happens again, I'm going to make sure that I got some support this time. So, you know, the whole reason why I got married and all that stuff was just a, was just a, wasn't a good reason to get involved with somebody. And I ended up getting a divorce from that person anyways. Um, I just didn't know how to be a good person. If that makes any, if that makes any sense. And so, you know, once I got distance from, from all of that, and it, I basically, I guess you could say I got it all out of my system. Was I able to start shedding the layers and taking a look at myself and my own behavior 
and and how that was affecting people around me and i didn't like i didn't like the person that was looking back at me in the mirror and i wasn't going to take my life i'm 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 too i don't know too much of a, a pussy to to kill myself i don't know i just i couldn't do that you know what i mean i can't i couldn't bring myself to 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 do that so yeah. i had no choice but to change <laughs> So you've come out of prison the first time. How did you get back in the second time? What did you do to go back in? Um, failed drug tests. Uh, didn't complete the the, re, the 90 day rehab that I was supposed to do for a violation of one of of getting in trouble for credit card fraud and drugs. And basically, it was drugs. Drugs, methamphetamine was was what really. You know, there's there are some substances and things in this world, and and my friend Amanda Gist said this, and it was from somebody that that she'd listened to. There's some things in your life that you just can't fuck with, right? Mm-hmm. Because of whatever they do to you. And for me, it was meth. I just couldn't fuck with it, man. Every time I did, it would it would take me right back to the same place, and I would start have to start back from zero. I started from zero three times in my life, and it was all because of meth. By the second time where you've gone back and you're starting from the bottom again, how come it took three times for you to then to go, oh, this actually is, I shouldn't be doing this? Uh, When I got out of prison, I knew that there were some things out there that I hadn't done that I wanted to do and it was still in the back of my head, like credit card fraud, learning how to make credit cards, put the information on the back, get the everything that's involved in that. Like I had goal. I mean, it sounds funny, but I still had goals that I wanted to, to achieve in, in, in that area. <laughs> of, so, you, <laughs> of, you know. so that was uh, aspiration was credit card. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, you ticked and that off. So I, I, yeah, I figured out how to do it and you know, I, I didn't get in a whole lot of trouble for, for, you know, what I was, what I was doing, but you know, in the process of that, it was, dude, I'm 30, 35 years old. Like half of my life is gone. What do, what do I have to show for it? You know, mm-hmm. other, other than some stripes that I said, I've been to prison and I know how to do some cool stuff. And I've got some really amazing, cool stories that I could tell you. But other than that, what, what do you got to show for this 15 years of your life that you just wasted? Yeah. So were you were, committing were, fraud be- so you could pay for drugs or was just the thrill of being able to do it? No, I didn't like myself, so fraud allowed me to be somebody else. Okay. No, I mean that that's really in a nutshell that that's why it was so appealing to me is that I could be somebody else and I didn't have to be me. I could go and use somebody else's identity. Like I, I would know exactly where this person lived. I could spout off their like I memorized all of their information, their their license number, their social security number. Like I re- like as a as a as a character actor would would prepare and get ready for a role so would i as far as becoming somebody else because if i got in trouble or if i got stopped by a a police officer i would have to be able to answer some of these questions like off the top of my head right without Mm. seeming like i'm stuttering to find out to to give you information about who i am (laughs) you're like an actor well, yeah. I mean, it, it, it literally was when I got arrested one time, I had like seven different, uh, identities and credit cards to go with them and IDs. And like, when they asked me, what's your social security number? I, I couldn't remember it because I had all of these other ones memorized. Gosh. <laughs> like I, like I literally forgot who I was. Yeah. 
Did you have your daughter at this time? No, no. Well, I did have a daughter and she's 20 years old, but when she was 18 months old before I went to prison, uh, her mom had her, had my rights terminated because like I was not obviously fit to be a father. (laughs) So it was this before, was she born when you were in jail the second time around? No, I had 18 months with her and then me and her mom split up uh, because of my behavior and, you know, things that I was doing and I could have contested it. I I knew when the court date was and I chose not to show up. Okay. So was that hard being in jail away from her? Uh, When I went to, so it was about six months to a year before I actually went to jail, uh, went to prison. But I mean, I spent six months in, uh, Phoenix, Arizona, and I stayed drunk the whole time because trying to grieve over that uh, and basically just sort of, you know, resigned to the fact that I don't have a relationship with her. And uh, when I got out, you know, I kind of, I I found her and uh, we're friends on Instagram, but I'm like, I'm not pushing. We haven't met. We haven't really talked about anything. Um, I'm just kind of like leaving the ball in her court. Like, hey, look, here I am. If you need anything, uh, you know, money, whatever, just let me know. And she hasn't, she hasn't, you know, reached out for any of that. I'm, you know, I'm letting her make the moves. You know I mean? If she wants to know me more about me, you know, all she has to do is ask. Plus, I mean, I really have no right. You know what I mean? It's like, I, 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 have, I, I basically turned my back on you and, you know, I wasn't a father to you. So, yeah. Did that sort of play any toll in you wanting to turn your life around? Was that a catalyst or was there something else that triggered you to go, okay, I'm 35, like you just said, and I have nothing to show for it. Let's make some changes. No, that honestly, that didn't play a part because I'd already, I'd already grieved the loss of her. You know what I mean? So I'd already basically go, okay, well, I mean, she's no longer in my life. I don't, I don't have to pay child support. I don't have, you know what I mean? My, my, the it's just the line's been cut so I don't have to worry about it anymore and so I didn't I didn't worry about it until after I got out and got my life together and I'm like ah oh, there's this there's this piece that's still floating around out there from you know the the damage that I did in my past that I that still hasn't been corrected yeah wow so what made you turn it all around and like I said just tired of being not a good person and somebody that nobody could count on. Uh, you know, everything I touched up to this point turned to shit. I mean, it would be good for a little while, but I'd find a way to screw it up. And everybody that I had grown up with is like so much further ahead of me now. And I'm still stuck it at the starting gate basically. And I mean, that's really what it came down to. I just, you know, I, I just started taking a look at myself instead of, blaming everybody else and for my situation, my circumstances, you know, you know, Oh, I, you know, all of these things that, that I could blame, I stopped, I stopped and I started just looking at the problem because I was the common denominator in every problem that I, that I faced. Right. Did you end up going to drug rehab? I went to a bunch. I've been to like 18 different institutions, including three rehabs uh, in my life. They didn't do anything for me. I mean, I knew everything. Like I could, I could get up at a, a at an AA meeting and I could speak 
all of the whatever the, those sayings are that they had, right? I could get up and talk and sound like I was the most recovered individual in the room and and be full of shit, right? I just sounded like I was like I was this amazing recovery guy and you know and it, it was all bullshit. How hard was it to move away from those people in your past that were associated with drugs? Well, once I once I I resigned to the fact that I was done and I got involved in other things like slow pitch softball, adult, you know, slow pitch softball, uh, other things that didn't have, I mean, people may have done drugs, you know, within that space, but I didn't know them. So I, I wasn't exposed to it. And so it allowed me to start doing things that, that gave me positive self-esteem instead of negative self-esteem. You know, when you're in, in the underworld, like in crime and criminal and criminality, you're, your accolades are coming from bad deeds. So and that, you know, are wrong. And so you can never really fully get a, a, a sense of self-esteem from something like that, because the things that you're doing are hurting other people and causing you to feel bad about yourself. So it sounds like you took it on your own accord to, you know, join a sporting club and get clean rather than go through formal programs. Yeah, because I'd already been through formal programs, and that didn't that didn't work for me. The problem was never not knowing the information. The problem was applying the information, you know, in my life, and and actually making a change and committing to to being a better person and wanting to 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 do better. And don't get me wrong, two thousand ten, yeah, the substances were gone, but the attitudes and all of the bad behavior were still there. So it then became an issue of, all right, well, how do we, how do we fix these behaviors that, that were a byproduct of the, the, the true symptoms of, of the drug use, you know? When you say bad behaviors, what are you talking about? Like, uh, not communicating, not knowing how to communicate with people, anger, um, uh, what else? Um, just not not treating people with respect and not like whether it was, you know, my mom or uh, a, a woman in my life or, you know, just not knowing how to, how to, to be a person that knows how to communicate. You know, my, my first instinct was always anger because it's so easily and readily available. I didn't know how to communicate in another way. Plus that's how I grew up in a, in a sort of a, a verbally abusive home. So, I mean, that's the one thing that I knew how to do. So I had to figure out how to stop doing that. And, you know, I've had five failed relationships um, that w- are because of me, mostly. Mm. Have you spoken to your mom since? And Yeah, me and my uh, mom are really, are really close. Like, I'm probably going to be hanging out with her this Saturday. She's going to come uh, see her, her granddaughter, you know. So how did she stay with, stick with you through all those years? She just, she, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, that, that's the rules, isn't it? I mean, there must've been times where she just shook her head and was like, he's a lost cause. He just, he's not changing. He keeps repeatedly going into jail. He keeps repeatedly doing drugs. Have you ever spoken to her and just found no. out the reasons why? Apart from being a son, of no. course. No, I think I'm waiting for, uh, cause I do plan on, on having like my dad on an episode and we're going to talk about, you know, his, his view of it. 
my mom's view of it for, you know, how was it from your view, you know, just sort of take us through, you know, what it was like being with somebody like me mm. from your, cause end, I don't know. What was, yeah. From your end, what was the hardest part about quitting? I don't know, man. It, it, it wasn't really hard. It was finding, so quitting has always been easy. The hard part, and like anything in life, when you have uh, uh, weight loss, anything that you struggle with, it's just staying stopped. Stopping's easy. It's figuring out how to not start again. And that's, and that's, you know, knowing yourself, knowing your triggers, knowing where you can be, where you can't be, who you can be around, who you can't be around. It's about knowing yourself and learning what, what triggers you. It sounds like you've got a relationship now with your daughter. Is that right? No, no, I don't. I don't, I mean, not really, but I mean, my, my daughter that I I'm raising right now, I have a almost three-year-old toddler and all of the mistakes that I've made in the past with my previous, I'm like super vigilant, vigilant now about like, I'm, I'm super involved in her life. Like I co-parent with her mom. Um, I see her four times a week. So like, I'm very present in her life and, and all the decisions that get made uh, from supporting her financially to emotionally, like I'm, I'm super dad, I guess you would say. <laughs> <laughs> As she gets older, would you let her try drugs? Uh, you know, I want to provide my daughter with the, uh, the life, not the life that I wish I would have had. I want to provide her with, uh, knowing the things that I wish I would have known, you know, like all of the things that, that I wish I would have known. That's what I want to provide for her and teach her. I mean, yeah, I mean, she's going to have a, a good life. And if she wants to choose, if she wants to try drug drugs, that, I mean, fine, you know, do what you're going to do, what you're going to do. But you know, if you, if you really want to do something like that, then at least the first time do it around me so I can make sure you're okay. And I can teach you what you're, you know what I mean? You want to try marijuana? All right, fine. Let's, let's smoke a joint. See what, and, and, and now, and then you're in a safe place. You know what, no one's going to hurt you, take advantage of you. This is what it feels like. Yeah. Don't be afraid of it. What advice would you give to someone who is, sort of where you've been in terms of a drug addiction and just not quite out of it yet, what advice would you give them? Keep trying. Uh, you know, that's why, you know, people, once they have it in their mind that they want to stop doing something, it doesn't necessarily end there. All right. Children don't necessarily learn how to walk all at once. They stumble a bunch of times. Um, people that want to lose weight, Sometimes, you know, they get right on it, but it's a progression, you know, it's got to be in your mind and then it, it, it turns into a reality from that point, but don't give up. And then if you're a, a person that's struggling or, you know, that's a family member of somebody that's struggling, same thing. Uh, go listen to a guy named Johan Hari. He did a Ted talk, uh, called everything you think you know about addiction is wrong. Go listen to it. His take yeah. on it is amazing. Uh, it's about connection, not, uh, is the opposite, opposite of addiction. So, you know, you need to come at it with love and compassion and, and, and understanding because it is a disease and you, you will not understand it unless you're in it. So life after jail, life after drugs, 
did you find it hard to get the trust back of the people in your network? At first, yeah. But, you know, like anything, time and consistency is what, what heals everything, right? You know, being consistent with your word, showing up, being accountable, uh, being consistent in your in, in how you act, and and you know, here's a good here's a good example. So when I was out there doing my thing, I would you like my number would change every month, right? My phone number. I've had the same number now since I got out of prison. So that's wow. what like almost 10, 15 years, the same phone number. So it's all about consistency, being consistent with your word and your purpose. And people will come around once they see that you're for real this time, because with addicts, what we suffer from is, Oh, it'll be different this time. No, no, no. It's going to be different this time. No, no, no. But it's going to be different this time. Well, it's never going to be different this time until it's actually different this time. Right. (laughs) Right. Great way to finish on. I can't thank you enough. This has been fantastic. Um, Thank you for sharing all your stories with us. Yeah, if you have any other other questions that spawned off of this that you want to get into, like I said, my story is very complex. It's very long. I mean, I, I barely scratched the surface in a three-hour interview I did on my story on somebody's show. You know, it, it just, uh, yeah, there's a lot there. It's awesome as well to see your journey and how you've come to the light at the end of the tunnel as well. Congrats on that. Not many people can do that, so... It's really to be commended. Thanks so much for your time today, Sean. Thank you, and thank you for having me on your show. I really appreciate it and uh, and what you're trying to do out there as well, Karis. It'll only cost you 20 minutes. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode about drug addiction and what the reality of jail life is like. If you learned something new, make sure you rate and review the Teach Me in 20 podcast on Apple Podcasts. Every review you make helps people find the Teach Me in 20 podcast and you'll be helping other people keep learning something new. We'll see you next week. Teach Me in 20. Teach Me in 20.